Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. Everything we do here at Changelog is hosted on Linode servers. Pick a plan, pick a distro, and pick a location, and in seconds, deploy your virtual server. Drawworthy hardware, SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple, easy control panel, nine data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they've got you covered. Head to linode.com slash changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. Quest for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Ryan Big. Ryan is known for his work on Rails documentation, including the Rails guides and Rails 4 in action. In 2015, he announced he was quitting all open source work as he wanted to spend his free time elsewhere. Our focus with Ryan was burnout. We talked about his time as a community manager for Spree, writing documentation for Rails, and what led him to quit open source, twice. We also talked about his occasional contributions since then, getting paid to work on open source, and whether there's a sustainable, happy medium. Uh, so why don't we start off by just uh, telling me a little bit about how you got into open source and how you got into Ruby. Sure. I was um, interested in Ruby and Rails from about 2007 when a friend of mine showed me this, the 15-minute blog by DHH where he used whoops a lot and he's like, look at all the things I'm not doing. And from that point on, I was really interested in building a forum system in Rails. So I started building that and I open sourced it and started doing work on that and people were contributing to it through the SBN repository at the time. And then um, a few years later, GitHub came along and I moved the project over to GitHub and people were contributing through that. So that's really where I got my start, I think, is my own little forum project. And you started, I mean, you have a background as a developer, but then uh, you made a lot of contributions to Rails through documentation, right? Yeah, that's right. So in 2011, I ran this little pledgy campaign. I raised two and a half thousand dollars to document Rails. I hmm. I think it was around that time Rails 3 was coming out and the router had been rewritten by Sam Stevenson, but while the code had been rewritten, the documentation hadn't. So I went through all the code and documented all the, the methods that you could use in the Rails router. And out of that, then uh, I think it was Mike Gundelow wrote the, the Rails routing from the outside in guide. And that's what I refer everyone to now if they want to understand what the Rails router is. So from that documentation came better documentation. It's it's nice to see that evolution around. I've also documented, I rewrote the Getting Started Guide, which is probably the one that people know the most about. Um, my first contribution, though, was the Active Record Querying Guide, which was previously called the Active Record Finders Guide. Because it does more than finders, we renamed it to querying. The Configuring Rails Applications Guide was mine. The Asset Pipeline Guide started because... <laughs> <laughs> because I was baiting DHH on Twitter and I was like, hey, this asset pipeline is pretty good, but where's the documentation? And he's like, why don't you put on your big boy pants and contribute to Rails? What have you ever contributed to Rails? 
And this was about <laughs> after my 400th commit to Rails. So I replied to him and I said, here's the list. Here's why I'm on the contributors list. And um, I think he was busy that day because he didn't end up replying back. <laughs> but anyway, after baiting him on Twitter, I ended up writing the beginning of the asset pipeline guide. That's how that came about. And then the last guide that I wrote that I can remember is the engines guide, which was actually a chapter of Rails 3 in action. And I extracted the content from that and built that into the official engines guide. So yeah. What, what was it like being a documentation, or primarily a documentation contributor on Rails? Was it something that was like really encouraged? Was there like a lot of infrastructure support for it? Or was it something that you really had to drive yourself? There was a lot of infrastructure and support for it. Xavier Norio, uh, FXN on GitHub, started that project, I think with um, Pratik Nek, who is LIFO on GitHub. And they would they started the Doc Rails project. So they're looking for contributors and they're really encouraging people from the community to contribute. And I was one of those people. And I reckon we had a team of around 10 people who were running the documentation at, at one point. And that's why we've got the Rails guides as they are today because of the work of Xavier and, and Pratik. That's how I got my start. So you mentioned, you kind of glossed over this, but you mentioned like the first documentation project you did was you crowdfunded. Yeah, that's, that's right. It's kind of curious, like, why did you decide to crowdfund that? Um, I was in between freelancing jobs at the time and I was like, Rails needs documentation and I need money. So let's combine the two and we'll start this crowdfunding project and hopefully I'll raise enough money to survive a month. And I did. And it was really nice to be able to spend an entire month working on, um, I worked on primarily my book, Rails 3 in Action. And also I, I reckon it was more of a 50-50 split actually between Rails 3 in Action and, and Rails documentation. And just helping out in the community, answering questions and Stack Overflow and that sort of thing. It's really good to be paid to do that kind of work. I really enjoyed it. So you mentioned that there was um, some support inside of the Rails project, you know, for people doing documentation. Um, but you eventually kind of transitioned into more of a community manager role for an open source project with with Spree. So what was that transition like? And, and how, what are your kind of thoughts on how to do community management? That transition was completely by accident. I was working for a company, you probably haven't heard of it because it's an Australian-based company. It's called the ABC. It's the Australian equivalent of the BBC. Everyone's heard of the BBC. No one's heard of the ABC. They're a big um, government-funded broadcaster. They do a lot of interesting programs. And from those programs, they sell DVDs and merchandise and whatnot. And to sell that online, they were they had an old ASP store, and then they were switching it over to Rails, and they wanted to use Spree. So the company I was working for at the time, Reinteractive, was hired as the consultants on that project. And that project persisted, I don't know, for eight or nine months or so. And I got involved in the Spree forums, uh, the, the Google groups, I should say. And a friend of mine pointed out this post, uh, this a friend of mine called Phil Arndt, who does the refinery CMS, he pointed out this post on the Spree list asking, like, we want to make Spree a Rails engine, so how can we do that? And I was like, well, you know, I've got some time to reply. I'm going to just write like a couple of paragraphs and then they can take it from there. It ended up being a page and a half of my thoughts. And out of that, Sean Schofield, the creator of Spree, contacted me and he's like, by the way, we've just received this funding and we're looking for a community manager and you're really passionate about this because of all your answers on the forum. Would you like to come and join us? And I was like, I get to work on open source and I get paid, you know, not a pittance so I can actually do things. And the other offer on the table was that I get to go around the world speaking at conferences. And I was like, yes, 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 absolutely. I will do this. I will do this because this is an amazing offer. So I said goodbye to my consulting gig and moved over to the Spree. And then 
from from then on, it was really just uh, about like it sounds it sounds glamorous that you get to travel the world and speak at conferences, maintain open source, and get paid for it. Um, but then eventually, after two and a half years, I ended up burning out from it, and that's that wasn't very good. It's like a totally different function from documentation as well, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I was. I'm always interested in, in helping out communities and building communities and helping people understand code. So documentation is is one of the ways that I do that. And the community manager role was a definitely another way I could do that because I got really involved with the Spree project and I could understand the code better than most people could. And that feeling when you can transmit an idea from your brain into somebody else's brain and they go, aha, I get it now. Like that's where I get my biggest thrill from is when people understand something because I was able to explain it clearly enough to them that they could understand it. Did you bring any kind of particular focus on non-code contributions since that's kind of the world that you came from when you started community managing? I welcomed all kinds of contributions. We did eventually have spree guides and so we did end up doing that, but a lot of the contributions I would say on spree were code contributions, um, people improving the framework and that sort of thing. Documentation wasn't kind of a focus on that project. I have kind of a, maybe this is a dumb question, but um, because Spree is a user-facing application, right, um, which is kind of different from the types of open source projects we've had on here before, was Spree being open source, did that change how you thought about the community manager role? Was it like being a community manager at any other company? Like, was anything about that particular to open source? I've never been a community manager at any other company so far. So um, Spree is my only experience with that. So what we were doing at Spree was mainly answering emails, maintaining the GitHub issues, doing new releases and that sort of thing. I don't know if it's any different to any other community manager role. I didn't really get to talk to many other community managers and I really wish I did because I think I would have got a lot better. Like I would have built up a support network and that may have prevented the burnout. So you mentioned that you were traveling a lot and going to conferences and stuff like that. Like what was your travel schedule like? How much were you actually traveling? Well, I think it was 2012 that I, or 2013 that I traveled six and a half times around the world, the equivalent of, so about 180,000 kilometers. That was a lot of flying. My longest flight was 42 hours, I think it was, from point to point. It was crazy. There was this, there was this time where I was consulting in the UK, and then I flew back to Melbourne and then had to fly back to New York for a conference the week after. So... I spent, I think, three or four days of that week in airports. And that was that's the less glamorous side of going around the world and traveling and speaking at conferences. The, the glamorous side is that you get to meet all these people and they're like, oh, my God, it's Ryan Big. He wrote the book and he maintains Spree and he's, he's actually real and he exists and he's been really helpful and I love him. That kind of fanboyism is, is hilarious. My wife got approached at a, a conference that we both attended she, she came along with me to dc and this guy kind of cornered her and he's like i have this idea i want to tell ryan but he looks busy at the moment so i'm going to tell you and hope that you pass it on she doesn't <laughs> remember what the idea was and she, could, she was just like he's right over there he's you could just go up and speak to him and she and he didn't so i don't even know who the guy was but if he's listening i'm i'm keen to hear what his idea was still yeah. Do you think some of that contributed to the feeling of burnout um, in that type of a role? Yes, absolutely. It's this um, 
what's the word? I'm looking for? Not, not Messiah complex. Fanboyism, hero, hero worship probably is the better term for it. Where people think you're the most amazing thing and you do all this amazing work. And therefore, my feelings for that were people think I'm amazing, so I have to continually be amazing. I have to continually push the envelope and continue working and reply to all these issues and re- reply to all these emails and just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And I think that's definitely, yeah, a contributing factor to the burnout was that I felt like I had to be the hero. Do you feel the same way about documentation as well? That's sort of like hero worship. Yeah, in a in a different kind of way. With documentation, typically the projects are much slower burn, if that makes sense. The open source projects are, you know, if an issue or a pull request sits there for a couple of weeks, people are like, why is it taking so long? He doesn't love me anymore. <laughs> but if you're writing a book or a guide, people don't care that it's taking weeks to write because it's it's this slow process of getting the content right, getting it ordered, reviewing it, editing it, making sure it's perfect before releasing it out into the world. Um, with, with the Rails guides, there was never any pressure to get them done. With the books I've written, there was pressure from the publisher, but as Douglas Adams says, I love the sound that deadlines make when they whoosh past. One of the reasons I was interested in having you on this show was because you've contributed in a variety of different ways to projects, which I don't know that a lot of people can say they've written code and done documentation and done community management. Um, so you've seen sort of like the whole view. And so a topic that's, that's come up before has been like code versus non-code contributions and <laughs> kind of reading about your background. I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, but sometimes it, people portray that as like you have to find the non-code people to make those non-code contributions, or that's the implication. Um, and there's this sort of like false dichotomy between like developers code and non-developers do non-code things. Um, but you're sort of a good example of someone that does all of that, right? <laughs> this, yeah. I don't see any point to writing code if you can't explain what it does in the form of documentation. If you're de- developing an open source project and you want people to use it, that yes, they can look at the code, but having documentation where it's like step one, step two, step three, step four, and now you're winning, that is extremely helpful. And even documentation explaining the thought process is sometimes useful as well. And you're right, there is that dichotomy of people who, you know, developers are like, no, I'm, I don't write documentation, I write code. And they're all hoity-toity about it. <laughs> it's, it's a very strange, very strange dichotomy and I'm, I'm trying to crack it, but I can't convince people to write documentation they think they suck at writing documentation but typically they don't they're they're okay and the documentation is is kind of sometimes it's sparse that's that's why they think the documentation sucks is because the documentation they write is sparse and it's kind of like you know the i don't know if you know the meme of like draw two circles and then draw the rest of the owl um <laughs> so it's like step one step 16 but there's like 15 more steps in between they're missing out and my job then is if I'm working with somebody like that, I encourage the documentation to be written however they want to write it. And then I work with them and reviewing the documentation like, hey, by the way, did you think about adding this in? And, you know, we could explain the wording here. And How about having an image describing the flow of this state machine, for instance? Like Spree's payment gateway, you've got the authorize, the capture, the refund, all, the, all of that. You can explain it with words, but you can also explain it with a with a pretty picture, which helps people understand the flow much better. It's almost just like having those methods, I guess, out there, like helps people help themselves, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's sort of odd. I mean, just thinking about it, I feel like there's almost um, 
the explanation that like developers don't do that kind of stuff is almost just trying to like pass the buck to some mythical person who's going to come in and like write all this stuff. But there's value in just having people learning how to do at least a little bit of it themselves. Yeah, try it. I mean, I didn't just instantly become good at writing documentation. I don't even think that I am good at writing documentation still. It's a practice. It's an art. It's a craft. It's any skill that you learn is you get good at it from practice. You learn the piano by getting by playing the piano a lot. You get better at writing code because you write a lot of code. You get better at writing documentation because you write a lot of documentation. And that's what I've done. So, again, I don't think I'm any good at it. And if people feel like they aren't good at writing documentation, I still encourage them to try it because trying is at least practicing and you will get better through practice. It's better than zero documentation. <laughs> exactly. Do you think that uh, that changes for like a big project versus a smaller project? I know you've maintained smaller projects on your own and then you've contributed to um, bigger ones like Rails. Like, Do you think that responsibility changes when it's a small project versus a big one? Yeah, on a small project, you probably... If it's a solo project or a small, really small team, it's up to the developers of that project to do that documentation. Whereas in Rails, um, it's not necessarily up to the Rails core team to do that documentation, although I wish it were, because then we would have had routing documentation, we would have had the asset pipeline documented, and um, probably engines as well. On the larger projects though, you've got people who add new features and you probably have people who want to write the documentation and getting them to work together is the key there. Also, I mean, smaller projects probably don't have anything as complicated as the asset pipeline to document, right? <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. I still don't understand the asset pipeline. Coming up, Nadia and Michael talk with Ryan about his departure from open source. In November 2015, he wrote a post announcing his departure. So we asked why he wrote it. What were the events leading up to it? And what was the response from the community? We also talk about how he stepped down and handed off his projects and what strategies he might suggest for those wanting to do the same. The interesting thing is, is that Ryan didn't actually quit open source. He still occasionally contributes. But the big thing we figured out is if quitting was the right decision for him. And you might be surprised with his responses. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Hired. Hired matches outstanding people with the world's most innovative tech companies out there. Hired uses an algorithmic job matching tool in combination with a talent advocate who will walk you through the entire process of finding a better job. You might be looking for a more flexible work schedule, more money, or remote jobs so you can travel and see the world. You might be looking for opportunities at Facebook, Mixpanel, or Squarespace, or the many other top tech companies out there looking for engineers on Hired. You and your skills can be a valuable asset to any of these companies. You just have to take the first step. That first step is Hired.com slash changelog. Go there, learn more. Our listeners get a special $600 hiring bonus when you find your next opportunity on Hired. Once again, Hired.com slash changelog.
I want to get into this uh, this whole time when you kind of burned out for a minute. So um, before before you burned out, before you wrote this blog post, what was your kind of your days and your weeks like? Like what what were you doing kind of on the daily? On the daily, I'd get up in the morning and I'd check my inbox and see what open source stuff there was. I'd reply to issues that people left comments on overnight. And then I would go to work and do my full day of work. Uh, on the train home, I would check my inbox. And then before going to bed, I'd check it again and do the same thing. And that was every single day, uh, even on weekends. And, and especially on weekends, I had free time. So I was able to do some actual coding work on these open source projects. And that just meant that I was working all the time. The same thing happened uh, at, at the end of my spree term. That was a similar kind of feeling where I had all this work to do and it felt endless and it kind of just collapsed on in me. So with Spree, for instance, there was several days, I reckon several months of this, where I would wake up and there would be 200 new messages in my inbox, over 200. This is the day before completely clean empty and then the next day there'd be 200 messages from the user group from github from the open source projects i was maintaining and it just felt overwhelming to have to chomp through that every single day and so when i quit open source in uh, 2015 i felt the same way i had all this work to do i was trying to write multi-tenancy with rails the second edition of that and i had my wife <laughs> i was trying to spend time with my wife and not be like feeling guilty that I'm having a good time while these open source projects are sitting there stagnating and nobody's working on them and people are actually using them, and but nobody cares about them enough to contribute. It was a really difficult time and I just felt like something has to give. Either I have to spend less time with my wife, I have to spend less time at work, or I have to spend less time on open source. The wife situation isn't going away, absolutely not, and that would be <laughs> terrible, absolutely <laughs> terrible if that went away. Work is enjoyable and it gives me money that I can use to spend, you know, actually having a roof over my head and food on the table. And open source, while sometimes and usually, uh, probably usually over sometimes, it usually brings me joy. At that point in time, it wasn't bringing me joy. And so I decided that's the thing I was going to cut out of my life is the open source work. And I would spend my time that I was spending on open source focusing on multi-tenancy with Rails. And what happened after that was from November through to, I think it was June or July of 2016, I was able to complete multi-tenancy with Rails. And I got a big thrill out of that when I finally did complete it. So you mentioned that you were a community manager at Spree. So a lot of people, you know, when they go for these kinds of roles, they go for them because part of that role is usually working on open source. So I think the assumption when you when you said community manager was that a lot of that open source work was just part of your job now. So was it was it that it actually wasn't part of your job and that it was entirely separate or just that there was so much extra open source stuff that you couldn't get it done in the, uh, in like your regular work day. Yeah. There's just so much extra stuff. I just couldn't get done in a regular work day because the work day didn't, wasn't just all about the open source issues and code and pull requests and documentation. It was about, um, replying to users on IRC. It was having long discussions there, big issue threads on, on GitHub and also on the mailing list. And it's just all these conversations that are ongoing kind of like touch hit, touch this one, touch that one, touch that one. Okay, good. Now I can get back to open source. And it felt like this massive pile of work that I had to do. It was very, very tough. Had you tried anything um, prior to like straight up quitting of just maybe I just need to manage my email better or whatever? Um, and then did you just hit a point where it was like, nope, nope, this is more than that? 
yeah, I did. I kept trying to manage the email better. So I'd snooze stuff that wasn't important, bounce it to the next day sort of thing. Um, I was trying to ask for support from the Spree, Spree the organization. Um, and I was just asking for somebody else to help maintain the open source issues because that was just me doing that. Um, there was interest from this company called uh, Free Running Technology, who's now called Stembolt. And they were doing some, some open source maintenance. They weren't as interested as they are now. They actually run the fork of Spree called Solidus, and they're maintaining that because after I quit, Spree kind of fell down. <laughs> it had a lie down. <laughs> and then so the, these Stembolt guys picked it up as Solidus. And I wish they would have done that earlier. I would probably be continuing my work with them, but, uh, you know, things happen. So, yeah, it was just hard. I did try to manage it better. I did try to get support. And I guess I just didn't reach out to enough people or the right people to get that kind of support. And I felt like that was the only thing I could do was quit. And what was the response like when you wrote that post? Were people understanding? Yeah, people were very understanding of the, the quitting open source project. More understanding than I thought they would be. I thought people would be like, but but hold on, you know, I've still got this issue. Can you just look at this issue? And people were actually not like that. They were really respectful and they're like, okay, that's fine. I can I can fork your project and merge my pull request. That's cool. And I'll just run off this fork for the time being. Other people um, in the community were actually volunteering their time to help out. So I've got this guy called Johnny Shields who's maintaining by star. Um, John Hawthorne, Jay Hawthorne on GitHub is maintaining paranoia. Forum, I wish there was a maintainer for that, but there isn't. Um, I can't think of any, any other open source projects. Oh, Redis. I was mainly maintaining the Redis suite of gems, so Redis Active Support and Redis Action Pack. That's now being maintained by Tubbo. But still, these projects all have a single maintainer. I wish there was a community around that was interested in maintaining these, not just people who were using it passively, but people interested in actually the ongoing support of these projects. It's funny. It makes me think about... um. Michael's post, actually. So when Nolan Lawson recently wrote the post about um, feeling starting to feel burned out by open source and Michael wrote a response just being like, you need to step away. And in those situations and someone will always take over. Michael, I'm putting words in your mouth, but. Um, <laughs> well, no, 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 I wouldn't say always, but <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, but, pub- I, but stepping yeah. away is an opportunity for other people to step up. Right. Yeah. So. Right. That was the thing that stuck out in my head about your post was like, I think it sounds like there's often this fear that like if I step away, people might be mad or everything will disappear or fall down or whatever. But like oftentimes people are okay. And if you just say you're not doing it, then you're just not doing it. Right. I should have just asked for support. It's absolutely what should have happened. It should have, shouldn't just come down to quitting. It should be like, Hey, by the way, I'm having a hard time here. Here's what I need help with. But it's the anxiety about it. Like you couldn't, I couldn't phrase it that way before. Of course, with hindsight, I can, but at that time, I just couldn't. It just felt overwhelming. It's like, by the way, that's it. Pulling the plug. Well, I, I think when it's that overwhelming, the, the right thing probably is to just say, you know what, I'm stepping away entirely. I mean, maybe like six months before that, it, it might have been good to be like, these are the things that I need help with. But, you know, once you're at a certain point, it's, you know, like your mental health is more important than, you know, whatever you feel like you owe to the project. Yeah. And I do feel a lot more mentally healthy. Is that a thing? I feel happier now that I've got less responsibilities in terms mm-hmm. of open source work. I was wondering about that because you still make occasional contributions, right? And it seems like you're sort of still paying attention to things in open source. Um, was that was that post more just about having to like draw this line in the sand and say, I'm not maintaining projects and I can contribute when I feel like it? 
Um, or did you have a point where you're like, oh, I kind of missed this and I want to come back? <laughs> um, it's true. I do continue to maintain some open source projects. So I've got this open source project called Elastic, which is talks to Elasticsearch servers using Elixir. Uh, I actually use that at work. So when I'm working on that, I maintain it at work and I never do any maintenance on it outside of work because it's a work project, mm. technically speaking. And they're completely cool with that. Culture Amp is, is great for that sort of thing. And then uh, I also have another open source project that I'm maintaining called Twist, which is my book review software, which I've been tinkering on for about six years. And it's open source, but nobody else contributes to it pretty much. It's just me. <laughs> I'm curious just to hear more about like how you actually like handed off your projects and like facilitated that process of stepping down. Um, you said you like you just sort of put out a call for volunteers and you found some maintainers. Was there anything like officially had to do on your repos just for other people that might be interested? Yeah. So when I quit, I left a big note in the readme saying this project is no longer maintained. If you want to maintain it, please contact me at ryanbig.com. And I also put that in the, the blog post too. And I got several emails from people who were interested in maintaining it. And I was like, well, these people I don't really know and they've never really contributed anything. But there's, then there's, there's other emails from people who I do know and they have contributed. So I made those people the maintainers because I felt like they would have more longevity with the project than the ones who didn't, who were just like, oh, it's an open source project I can, I can probably maintain. That I want to hear more about. Um, I noticed <laughs> you had something on, uh, I think it was a translation gem maybe about... You were like helping to triage issues and then express a little bit of frustration <laughs> that whoever brought it up wasn't helping out. Um, and yeah, oh, I, you know, saw I, was, that too. I was just sort of wondering, like, how do you know who's going to be a like, quote unquote, good maintainer or a committed maintainer? Like, how do you actually pick someone to hand off to? So there's this guy in the community who I've known since I was a pup. Uh, there's this guy <laughs> called Jason King, and he has a lot of opinions, and some of them are right. And this one, this particular opinion was that the IATN engine was unmaintained and abandoned, and nobody loved it. And Sven is a horrible person for doing that. That was his opinion. And that opinion happened to be horribly, horribly wrong. And I disagreed with it so much that I came out of my open source hiatus and triaged every single issue on IATN that was still open every single pull request and assigned them into milestones. And just on the train in, train into work and train home, I was able to maintain, in quotes, air quotes, maintain um, the IATN gem and actually did a new release of the IATN gem and fixed a lot of longstanding issues. I think the oldest one was from 2011. So that's a six year old issue now. That's now been fixed in the IATN gem. I'm probably going to step away from the IATN project now that it's done and maintained in, in a you know, relatively healthy state. And so if anyone else wants to step up and maintain, I'm sure Sven and I can find somebody else who can do that. Hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like you just like, because you sort of made a conscious decision to step in, did that make it easier to contribute where maybe others didn't? Is it just you cared more than other people? It sounded like it was sort of an easy problem to solve or you kind of just came in, did it, and then you left? It's a tough, tough question. I think it needed to have two things. It needed to have somebody who cared, somebody who had time. Well, that person needed to have both of those things. They needed to have the care and they needed to have the time. I happened to have both at the time because I'd finished writing multi-tenancy with Rails and was kind of between books and was looking for stuff to do on the train. And I found IATN needed help and that's what I did. If anyone else feels the same way, I'm sure Sven and I could, could find somebody else to maintain it as well. Over the long haul. 
wondering for do you would you recommend handing for people that are near to open source and looking to build their reputation um would you i guess trust someone like that to take over a project that has been handed off versus a project that they started themselves does that make sense like is yeah, that is um, that the right kind of role I wouldn't recommend just to like for Sven and I to hand off IHNN to somebody who's new to open source. I reckon what we could do is have like this handover period of probably a year where we monitor the issues and just give guidance to that kind of thing. So if people are interested in open source, they can be like, hey, what kind of issues are there? And they could try and triage the issues themselves and we could give them guidance and like, you know, maybe don't call users idiots because they don't understand how the software works. Maybe don't disparage them in, in you know, using a lot of horrible languages <laughs> happens on a lot of open source projects. You know, be kind, be generous with your time, but don't overdo it and don't burn out. And kind of give them that guidance of like, it's not, it's not critically important that you work on this. And if you feel like it's too much, then it's okay to step away at any point. But while you're here, we'll give you, we'll give you guidance and we'll give you love and we'll support you hundred percent of the way. So yeah, I think new open source contributors, if they want to come in by all means. Do you feel like you had that mentorship for yourself as a maintainer? In the early days, no. But with practice and spree and a lot of uh, the community discussions around that, I believe I did get a lot of mentorship there. And and there was also also a lot of you know people who kind of grate on you a little bit. There's this one guy. I'm not going to name him because you know names withheld to protect the innocent. It, one day he just really got on my nerves. Just oh, I was so so mad at his petulance his entitlement and i was like screw this i'm going for a ride on my bike so i, I get on my bike and i ride uh, two kilometers like a mile from my house and i have an accident i come off my bike and break my left arm so i'm mad from this guy and then this car cut me off and i break i broke my arm and i'm just cracked it really hard and i was like i got i got picked my bike up off the road and threw it over to the curb and I just went to the driver and stuck my arm out towards her finger extended and went you and she was like I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry do I need to take you to the hospital and just that sentence like do I need to take you to the hospital completely simmered me off I just had the, the crappiest day and uh, that that was not a good way to end it but then they gave me some really good painkillers and that made my day <laughs> so much better <laughs> worth it yeah, <laughs> but yeah, there's there's that kind of thing. Like in open source, people can be discouraged because of the hatred and vitriol and entitlement. I think um, that every open source maintainer comes across it. I know Aaron Patterson talks about it a lot on Rails. Um, this other Rails contributors who talk about it a lot. That that sense of entitlement of like, why aren't you paying attention to what I'm saying? I'm right, you're wrong, and it's it's hard to deal with as a new open source maintainer. And having that guidance of like, it's okay, you know, just be nice. Um, one person who I think does this really, really, really ridiculously well, who's always seems cheery and happy and chirpy, is Jose Valim on the Elixir project. He consistently is happy, treats people with, with respect, even if they're being, you know, a bit blunt or a bit obtuse. And he's just an inspiration, absolutely. I want to be more like Jose. Oh. It seems like you you still pick up new projects here and there. Um, do you think that to some extent, like you enjoy picking up a new project and getting involved in new projects more than you know the inevitable maintenance of them? Is that kind of part of why this continues to happen as well? I'm a sucker for it. I'm such a sucker for it. Um, with with IATN, I think I'm not going to maintain that 
any longer with anything else. With the elastic package, I'm probably going to maintain that as long as I work at Culturamp or as long as I need it. Um, but I try and realize that I'm slipping back into that lifestyle, I guess you could call it, of like, oh, I'm just going to check these issues and I'll just reply here and I'll help out here and that sort of thing. Um, I try and catch myself doing that and then I go, no, that wasn't healthy before. It's probably not going to be healthy now. So let's just not do that and let's go off. Let's find something else to distract our brain with. So that's what I'm doing with with my writing at the moment. I'm I'm doing that sort of, that's my distraction from open source, if that makes sense. Have you have you had any projects that you picked up like that or started working on that then did grow the community and that you were able to just kind of step away from without people noticing? Or have you continued? And are there any practices that you might have learned during the way? Paranoia is probably the only project that did that. It's an access paranoia alternative slash equivalent for active record. And then when I did quit this open source work, there was a substantial community around, I guess substantial is like 20 people uh, around it, around it who were using it actively. And one guy stepped up and, and that was really good and he maintains it now. But I wish there was like more of a community ethos around maintaining the open source project. It's not like, oh, just Ryan, would, Ryan will merge his pull request. Or maybe it should have just been that I should grant people permission to do that. I don't know. So sort of wrapping up this segment, um, so people use the term burnout a lot to talk about when they leave or step down or whatever. Do you think that people need to call it burnout in order to leave? Um, is it okay just to leave because you're kind of done with something and you want to focus on something else? Do we always have to call this failure? <laughs> yeah, burnout is used as a convenient excuse. It's like, my mental health is being affected by this project and now I feel like leaving. And I'm going to leave now. And I think while that is mostly true, in some cases it may not be true. It may not just be may just be used as a convenient excuse. But um, there's also the reason I didn't quit. I didn't quit or hand over the projects earlier is because I had the anxiety around if I quit, then people will hate me. They'll not use the projects. This will have all been a waste of time. It'll all just crumble into dust. And that's not true at all. Um, that didn't happen. People continually use the projects now. Um, there's people who still maintain it, and they didn't crumble into dust. It's the anxiety that I had about maintaining it that, that kept driving me to that point of burning out. And I think what we need to have is, is more of a discussion in the open source community. Like, if you're no longer interested in the project, if your heart is no longer interested, just like a regular job, you're allowed to leave. You're not chained to your desk. You're not forced into the building every single day you can choose to leave at any point in time, but it's polite and encouraged that you tell people you're thinking about leaving and you commence handover procedures if possible. That's what made me, made me start thinking about it because it is like with a job where I imagine for people, if you're really passionate about your job and you might be afraid to leave because you're like, well, who's going to do all this that I was doing um, or the <laughs> next person might not be as good or whatever and it's hard to leave a job. But I mean, in the end, it's possible to just quit and move on, not because you hated the company or it didn't work out, but you're just sort of like, I'm done and I've done the things I wanted to do. And I feel like there's something to be learned there for open source as well, or any kind of, I mean, whether it's volunteer or, or paid uh, hobby activity. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, something that uh, Adam was musing about that I also wanted to ask you about is... Do you think that we're hearing more about burnout now just uh, because open source as a practice or 
community um, has started to mature. And there's sort of this question now if it's not just about like creating stuff in open source, but now we're kind of getting to the point where people are starting to want to age out of a project or move on. Um, do you think that's contributed to why we talk more about burnout now? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I think what we're seeing is the first generation of open source contributors, or, or at least on GitHub projects. Um, I mean, I'm only new to this game. Open source has been around <laughs> longer than I've been alive. I think we're seeing these first generation open source contributors go, you know, I'm no longer passionate about this project and I'm thinking of moving on, but, you know, my work is going to crumble into dust and it will be meaningless if I do so. And then they burn out from it and, and move on. So what we should be encouraging is this second generation or next generation of open source maintainers to come along, you know, encourage the first generation to say, by the way, I'm looking for help exactly like what I should have done. I need help with these projects. Uh, I'm trying to maintain them, but I'm struggling. It's okay to, to admit defeat in that way. So when they, they do that admission, then they should look around the community, like who's been contributing to this project? Who can I you know, tap on the shoulder to be the next maintainer or the next group of maintainers for this project? That's probably why we're hearing more about burnout is because that first generation is getting tired. Coming up, we talk with Ryan about getting paid for open source work and whether or not money actually helps. We talk about his thoughts on compensating open source developers, funding an individual contributor versus funding a project, a happy path to maintainership if there is one, and so much more. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Bugsnag. Bugsnag is mission control for software quality. And on this segment, I'm talking with James Smith, co-founder and CEO of Bugsnag, about the core problem they're solving for software teams and why you should head to bugsnag.com changelog to test it out with your team. Let's start with, um, you mentioned you and Simon. So you, you guys obviously at one point didn't have this company, right? So as founders, as engineers, you got to a problem. What was that problem? Why does Bugsnag exist? Uh, Simon and I, my co-founder, I met in college. We went off to build software for other companies. I ended up in a startup. He ended up in enterprise software. And we had the same problem in both of these companies. When things break, it's really hard to figure out how badly they're broken, who's impacted, and what to fix first. So we both had this problem ourselves. So we decided, hey, why is no one doing a good job of fixing this problem right now? So very much Bugsnag was born out of uh, scratching our own itch, as they say. One thing that we find all the time is that there's this tension in software teams or in product companies where you want to deliver new features to your customers or you want to build cool new stuff. But at the same time, you've got to fix bugs because no matter how good a coder you are, you're going to introduce bugs. But there's no clear definition of where to set that slider. Should I uh, be fixing bugs now or should I be releasing features? And so this tension exists, I think, in all product teams, all software teams. If you don't have a tool like Bugsnag, it's very difficult for you to figure out where to spend time. And so that's the idea here is we're trying to help teams understand whether they should be building or fixing, because there's a bit of a delicate balance between both. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So if your team is unsure of how to spend their time building or fixing, give Bugsnag a try. It's free to get started with a 45 day extended trial exclusive to our listeners 
Head to bugsnet.com slash changelog. So I wanted to touch on what it's like to get paid for open source and how money and open source mix. Um, when you were at Spree, you were being paid to work on open source. And it sounds like even some of your open source work now is on work hours. Do you think that the presence of money helps keep you in open source? Certainly, it absolutely does. If, for instance, I was not paid to you know, paid to work on Spree, I probably wouldn't have done as much work as I did. It allowed me to live my life, have my roof over my head, have food on my table sort of thing for two and a half years. And within that two and a half years, I did a substantial amount of contributions to Spree. I think it's over 4,000 commits. Um, without that pay, I, would have, I wouldn't have contributed 4,000 commits, maybe 40, maybe 400, who knows? But it allowed me to do a lot of good work on open source and not worry about where my next, you know, how I'm going to pay my rent or how I'm going to get food. It was really beneficial. And with regards to Culture Amp paying me to do open source contributions, they benefit kind of indirectly from that because we're using the Elastic Package at work. And if that Elastic Package didn't exist, then we probably wouldn't, we would use another package or somebody else, you know, would have to contribute to another open source project to do the things with Elastic that we want to do. And even then we would be contributing to open source. So either way, we're, we're going to have to spend time and you know, time is money. So we're gonna have to be spending money on open source contributions too. Are there trade-offs to it? Like are there things that where being paid to work on open source uh, makes things harder or just compromises you in some way? Yeah, your ethics are kind of compromised in the way that we're paying you to do open source. So these are the things we think are important and these are the things you should work on. So at Spree, because I was paid to do Spree work, you, you've got this large group of work that you can do, and there's a large boundary around the work that you can do. There's this huge area of the work that you can do. And so there's never an ending stream of, of work there. And you could contribute to the Spree main project, or you could contribute to extensions, you could contribute to the Google group, you could contribute to the IRC discussions, and they didn't mind uh, as well that I was contributing to other things at the same time. But if I was paid to work on a particular open source project, let's say I worked at Facebook and worked on the Babel project, for instance, even though I'm not a JavaScript developer, a large open source project like that used by thousands of people, because I'm paid by Facebook, Facebook gets their say of what I contribute to Babel, for instance. And I think that compromises the ethics in that regard because they get the features they want rather than the project getting the features the community wants slash needs. Yeah, it's a different kind of project, right? Which I guess, again, mm -hmm. goes to show that open source is not all the same across all projects. I mean, I, I think it's rarely that direct. It's usually pretty indirect, right? Like, yeah, it uh, is. It's not like, by the way, we're going to fire you if you don't add these features in. It's never that yeah. direct. I, I think a, maybe a better example is like the Go project, right? Where 
the majority of the committers are at Google and Google's certainly not telling these people what to do because they, they are the kind of developers that are not told what to do. Um, <laughs> but they, they are sort of constantly inundated with Google's problems and Google scale problems and the types of engineers that Google has. And that really paints who they view as their audience, right? Right. That's exactly right. Yes. I guess like part of me wonders like why, what makes open source not something that is fun as a volunteer hobby um, is sort of what's going through my head right now. But then I think like, well, some people do enjoy contributing to open source in their spare time. Um, and I guess I was just kind of thinking about like whether there are like different stages of open source, um, either in your own, I guess, like career as a contributor um, or different stages of a project where doing it for free or doing it as a volunteer makes sense. And then there's a point where it's kind of like, I need to be paid for this or doesn't work. Does that seem coherent? <laughs> yes, it does. It does absolutely seem coherent. So when I was starting my contributions to Spree, it was a lot of terms of doing Google group answering and um, a couple of issues here and there, but nothing substantial. And then working on the project itself is enjoyable. So when I was contributing to, to other open source projects, you start out like, oh, I'm just going to make this contribution here. And then it feels great because people get to use my code. That's mainly why I contribute to open source is that there's going to be somebody else out there. There's a market in a sense of people that want to use my code. And that's a good feeling that I wrote something that people are using and benefiting from. And that is why you contribute to open source in the first place. But then you know, open source is not free as in beer, it's free as in puppy, and you have to maintain it. And you, people come up with weird and wonderful feature requests and bug reports that are literally a single line of like, it didn't work. Like, what didn't work? <laughs> and that grinds on you, that that just gets to you over the, over, I don't know, years and years of maintaining the same open source project. And, you know, your interests change over time as well. That's That's another issue is that, you know, you get started with an open source project and you love it and you work on it every day because it's passionate. It's just something that you're passionate about. And then the passion kind of fades with time and you're like, well, that's no longer interesting to me. And so I'm not going to contribute to that anymore. The money, the money helped a lot with Spree. While I wasn't in love with the code as much as I was at the start after two and a half years, the money kept me going. And I was like, I get paid to do this. I'm just going to keep thinking about this problems and trying to solve them, even though the code is is no longer enjoyable to work with. In a, like it wasn't really my passion at that time, at the end of it. It's almost like there has to be some reward at some point, whether it's building your reputation, that's a suitable reward, or at some point that it just kind of becomes money. Yeah, the reputation definitely came out of that. And I still get approached to conferences like, oh my God, it's Ryan Big. Oh, it's him. Oh, hello. <laughs> You wrote the book, you contributed to Spree, and I'm like, that was years ago. I, I do a lot more now. I've done a lot more now. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's very strange, very strange having this reputation and people, um, <laughs> this reputation is a niche of a niche. So the general layman view of a celebrity is somebody who's famous everywhere. The, the photos are on magazines and whatnot. And so when I tell people that I'm a celebrity, <laughs> jokingly mostly they're like oh what do you do and i said well i write books and documentation and contribute to open source and they're like oh that's what's what what do you do <laughs> but in the niche of a niche of a niche of a niche where we exist in this rails world 
is people are like, oh my God, it's Ryan Big. It's so weird to see that, that change of people who are like, eh, I don't care about you. And other people who are like, oh my God, it's you. It's kind of like the best of both worlds, right? Because then you can yeah. go to like something else outside of open source and no one knows your name. Yeah, that's right. Lots of an anonymity there. It reminds me of like actual celebrities that are on a sitcom and then they move up past that sitcom and do like yeah. amazing independent films and everybody's like, you know, calling them the name from their character 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> totally. You're like, I've done more than rails. Come on. Ah, uh, no, that's okay. I, any contribution is fine. They can name anything I've contributed to. It's, it's, I don't care if it's rails three in action or multi-tenancy with rails, anything. It's just good to be known and, I try and get them to know them as well. I just don't want them to be like hero worship, but I want to know who is doing the worship, if that makes sense. Because by talking to these people and not just going, oh, yeah, that's good that you're, you're, you know, you like what I do. I'm like, what do you do? And I found out a lot of interesting stuff in the community through just that. So the, the fame comes with a lot of finding out information from people and finding out these cool things they're working on or projects they're looking into. It's, it's really good. Does any of it surprise you? Like people from totally random walks of life that take interest in it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Absolutely. Had all kinds, all kinds of people, old, young, all, all sorts of things approach me. And it's just, and when they say, when they come up to you and they're like, I read your book and now, so that's right. In Sydney, I went to a meetup in Sydney, a Rails meetup in Sydney and this a lady called Matenia introduced herself to me and she said, hi, I'm a real estate agent, or at least I was until I read your book and now I'm a Rails developer. So thank you. <laughs> that that was awesome. And I keep thinking of that when I'm writing and I'm getting down in the dumps about that kind of, you know, that writer's block of like, oh, I've never finished this project and no one loves me anymore and this project is no longer useful to anyone. I think, well, maybe this project will be useful to another Matenia down the line. Maybe somebody will read this book and go, I understand this concept now. I'm going to become the most amazing Rails developer or the most amazing whatever developer. It's a really good feeling. That's awesome. So there's been a lot of self-reflection. I'm just trying to think, like, is there anything else that you've learned in the last few years about managing your workload and and just sort of, you know, being better at at managing your work and not burning out and just kind of feeling happy in your daily life? What would you tell yourself sort of two years from now? And, And by extension, tell a lot of developers out there before they hit burnout as well. So I'm good at really thinking about how terrible I am at managing my workload. And my wife is also really good at thinking about how terrible I am at managing my workload. Not only that, she's good at telling me how terrible I am at managing my workload. And So your advice in, is to in, get married? <laughs> it, it's My advice is not necessarily to get married. To have somebody who, who you're close with, like a close friend, for instance, even that, you don't have to go the whole way of getting married. But somebody who can say, you're being a ridiculous idiot stop working so hard how can i help you how can we how can we stop this burnout like you're you're grumpy you're really easy to be agitated you're not paying attention to these things like how why are these things happening and and having somebody there to talk through it is is great so two years from now when new developers well two years from now i hope that i would <laughs> i hope that he would know better practices of maintaining workload well two years ago i hope that if i was able to speak to ryan from two years ago i would say it's not that critical that you continue doing all this work none of it matters that much that you have to kill yourself to do it that you have to spend all this time doing it 
Um, you're allowed to go out and have fun. You're allowed to go out to a movie and watch the movie and not think about open source. You're allowed to go for a walk in nature and not think about open source. You're allowed to go out for dinner with your wife or an anniversary and not think about open source. It's okay. Nobody will. Nobody is going to die if you don't think about open source. It's not important. It's a good advice for open source communities too, right? Of just like even even reinforcing that to each other and not expecting that the other person is always going to be there all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I have a similar story to this, except I've been with my wife for like 12 years now. So it, it was, you know, she would be like, you're being ridiculous now. But now I can actually recognize it before she needs to tell me. Um, <laughs> usually because <laughs> this is exactly what happens, actually. So there's certain things that like she's just never going to do and I'm never going to do. And they'll slightly and an- we'll slightly annoy each other. And when I start to get really mad about one of them, I know that I'm actually not mad about that. I'm, I'm getting sick of my job. <laughs> so, <laughs> Like literally like I'll start to be like, man, she did not refill the water thing again that goes in the fridge. And I'll start to get really <laughs> mad about it and I'll be like, Oh, I need a new job. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a, Good degree of self-reflection there. <laughs> it's taken a long time to get there, but yeah. Yeah. I, I realize that when I come home grumpy, it's probably not a good thing. Uh, if, it, if it's a single day, like everyone has, uh, everyone has bad days. Yeah. <laughs> people like, people ask me like, when does programming become easy? I'm like, it doesn't, you just have more easier days than you have hard days. You still have those hard days. And when you have those hard days, you come home grumpy. But if you have a series of hard days in a row or hard weeks in a row and you're constantly grumpy, that wears you out and it wears the people around you out. And you need to, like, personally, I need to realize when I'm getting grumpy and how long I've been grumpy for and go, what's making me grumpy and how can I, what can I eliminate that, (laughs) eliminate sounds bad, doesn't it? It's like I'm asking for an assassin. (laughs) Eliminate. Um, what can I get rid of out of my life that will make it easier for me to be happier? So can I stop contributing to open source? Do I need to put down the writing projects that I'm on? Do I need to, you know, pay more attention to my wife and my, my daughter? What do I need to do to make me happy? And it's about having that retrospective and setting aside that time to have that kind of retrospective thought of what's been making me grumpy and how can I fix it? Hypothetically. Is there anything in open source that would need to change or that could change that would make you come back and start contributing more regularly? You could pay me to do it. <laughs> Good answer. You could pay me. You could pay me what I get paid to work full time on on proprietary software to work on open source software, just like I go on Spree. Um, that definitely helps a lot. Um, to contribute back to open source projects, I I just simply don't have time anymore. It's you know, I've got my wife, I've got my daughter, I've got work, I've got stuff I do on the weekends, I've got stuff I do at night. There's just no room in the schedule for it. And when I do have free time, it's on the train into work. It's half an hour in and half an hour out. And that's, I spend that time writing usually. So there's really no time for open source. So if you gave me a full-time job where I could, where my purview was literally contribute to open source, however you see fit, and you paid me a livable wage, by all means, I'm open to job offers. Good answer. Does it mean that you think like the, when I've seen you sort of advocate for um, people getting paid to work on open source, do you think that just has to come from companies versus raising money for yourself or whatever? 
Yeah, I'm a hard left-wing kind of guy, and socialism is high on my agenda. Um, it's not high on people who, you know, have the money. It's high on people who don't have the money. <laughs> so um, with regards to that, while I would love if Culture App would hire me purely just to contribute to open source projects that they use or, you know, funnel money into open source projects they use, like we use Webpack extensively. We use React extensively, Babel, Rails, Ruby. We're not contributing anything back to these projects directly. And we, while we do encourage open source contributions that are relevant to the work we're doing now, we don't encourage developers necessarily to go trawling through the open source projects and, and lending a hand. It's not like we have a day where it's like, go and work on open source, it's fine. Because it doesn't make sense financially for the company to do that. You're wasting the company's, that's the way they see it, wasting the company's time contributing to these open source projects. But the way personally I see it is that you're not wasting the time. You're spending money now to save money later. You're spending money now to to maintain these open source projects. And because they are maintained, you know, in a good state, those projects will be around longer and you'll be able to benefit from them longer. For instance, let's say Spree, which uses the active merchant gem extensively, if that was maintained by one person, it's not, it's maintained by Shopify. But if it was maintained by one person and that one person decided to quit and that project then fell into disrepair, Spree would have to find, you know, would have to pick up the maintenance of Active Merchant because it seriously depends on it or the community would need to exist around Active Merchant. But because Active Merchant belongs to Shopify, Shopify pays its developers to work on Active Merchant um, because it's important to Shopify's business. With a project that isn't directly important to a business, the business doesn't see any value in contributing to that open source project. So CultureAmp doesn't see any value in, well, I'm speaking for an organization. My view of CultureAmp, my experience in CultureAmp is that there isn't a view of, we should contribute more to Rails and, and spend time helping out Rails, even though we usually use it extensively. We shouldn't spend time contributing to React and Webpack because that isn't relevant to the work we're doing right now, and that isn't earning the company dollars. But in the future, if that project, if those projects were unmaintained and fell into disrepair, then we would need to do work and probably switching to a different project, and that would be more money that we would spend doing that work, if that makes sense. So wait, are you advocating for only in a situation where a company directly benefits, should they encourage those contributions? Do you think that's right, or do you think it should be different? I can't tell which side you're on. I'm sorry. Yes, I did speak for a while. It's good. You spoke so, both both sides really well. But thank you. Um, yeah, it's like that that quote from Lord of the Rings. If you go and ask the elves, they'll say yes and no. Um, <laughs> so, I I'm on the side personally of companies should probably allocate at least one, two, three developers to work on open source, and not necessarily full time, but perhaps a day, a fortnight, a day every two weeks would be good. Um, just to say, like, go and work on whatever open source projects you feel are valuable. And if there's no open source work they're interested in, then they can work on regular work. Um, I think because these open source projects are vital to the work that the companies are doing, it's like your report, the roads and bridges, right? It's the mm. underlying infrastructure to these businesses. If these open source projects didn't exist, these businesses would struggle. They would, like, if Rails didn't exist, Coltramp would probably be on ASP.net, and I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. If Active Merchant didn't exist, there'd be all this buggy payment processor code. And Spree would, you know, someone would have got hacked or credit card details would have gotten leaked or something. If 
Webpack didn't exist, we'd all be stuck using Gulp or, or whatever else there is. You know, these, these are vital parts of the infrastructure and we do need to spend companies' money and we do need to spend time convincing the people with the money at the companies to contribute developer time to these projects because they are our infrastructure and it is vital that they are maintained. So that's what the sign on. Awesome. Well, <laughs> I can't think of a better note to end on. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Ryan. Thank you. All right. Thank you for tuning in to Request for Commits. We love to explore different perspectives in open source sustainability. And this show is about the human side of code. If you enjoy this show, share it with a friend, help us help others discover the show too. And thanks to our sponsors, Linode and Hired. Also thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. This show is hosted by Nadia Ekbal and Michael Rogers. It's produced by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and edited by Jonathan Youngblood. The awesome music you've been hearing is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and you can find more episodes just like this at changelaw.com. Thanks for listening.